Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin here at the University of Ottawa, which is not where I work, but often where I hang out. And today I'm joined not by Craig Forces, but by Thomas Junot, who's uh, joined us as part of the Intrepid podcast blog and uh, has written an article about Saudi Arabia that I really wanted to talk about. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks for letting us use your office because um, apparently, you know, Carlton this time of year. It's a little, far away. And a lot of construction. Uh, Ottawa's <laughs> seasonal construction is never fun. Now, you've written this piece in International Journal. Uh, it's almost been a year since the kind of Saudi spat, I think it, some people are calling it, but basically a, a serious downgrading in relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia. And I just kind of wanted to unpack that because, I, you know, a year in hindsight, so much has happened with Saudi Arabia, and, and we'll get into that. So... I just kind of want to reflect on this and what's happened over the course of the past year and where you think this is all going. And, and you touch on a lot of that in your article. So um, the line that you you say in the piece and the line I really liked was that you said the partnership with Saudi Arabia has always been costly but necessary. And, you know, that's kind of the backdrop to all of this. And I think probably also, even if things got better, probably the future of relations with Saudi Arabia. But can you maybe explain the relationship before all of this happened. It, it seems to have been surprisingly tangled even before it got pretty bad. Well, that's a, that's a good way to start. The, the way I've always framed the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, and by extension, smaller U.S. allies like Canada, is that it's a partnership that's costly but necessary. It's necessary uh, for a simple reason. Saudi Arabia, like it or not, uh, holds the world's largest reserves of conventional oil. It is the largest exporter, it is the largest swing producer, and it is the country, uh, one of the countries that can have uh, the largest impact on uh, world oil markets and therefore on the stability of the world economy. Um, and, and this is, goes beyond debates on, on you know, uh, environmental debates on where we want our energy policies to go in the future. That's the reality today, and it's been the reality for the last 70 years. In that sense, the United States has assessed since the late 1940s that it has a fundamental interest in keeping Saudi Arabia close. Um, because of the importance that Saudi Arabia, ha Saudi Arabia has in world oil markets and therefore on international global economics, you want Saudi Arabia to be close to you. You don't want Saudi Arabia to be a rival because it would have the ability to seriously hurt you. That has been the U.S. calculus since the beginning. As Canadians, we do not have uh, much of an impact on the reality of that partnership, but we have a very clear interest in its perpetuation because we also would seriously suffer if Saudi Arabia either collapsed as a state or became some kind of a rival or an enemy. Um, so in that sense, for Canada, it is a necessary partnership. That being said, from the beginning, it's been a costly partnership. It's been a partnership that has had a lot of downsides. You can go back to the oil shock of the 1970s. You can go back to the abysmal human rights record in Saudi Arabia that has been a constant friction point. Um, you can go back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on which there are still today and have been over the years serious disagreements. 9-11, when 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. And I could go on and on. That being said, in the United States, both Republican and Democratic administrations have looked at it somewhat differently at a tactical level, but have always stuck to that basic assessment, we need that partnership, we need to sustain it, even though it is costly. So the ideal approach to Saudi Arabia is to maintain the partnership, to, to, to keep it, while trying to create some kind of distance to limit the costs of these inevitable friction points. Right. So this is kind of the background to that. Now, before the spat 
blew up last year. There, there was, of course, the arms agreement that Canada signed as a part of this costly but necessary relationship, right? There's a, a an arms industry that's based in southwestern Ontario that, that benefited from this deal, um, signed by the Conservative government, but um, the Liberals basically allowed it to go through, much, and they're still being heavily criticized for that today. And what's kind of really interesting about this, and you talk about this in the article, is that ironically – Trade with Saudi Arabia leads to worse ties um, than than you and you wouldn't expect that, right? When you have normally when you trade with another country, you expect their relationships to actually improve, but in this case, you have uh, these limited arms sales, but Canada obviously feeling or at least the Trudeau government feeling uncomfortable about that. So over over the decades, relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia, I would describe them as cordial but positive in the sense that Canada adhered to that fundamental bargain between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, but it never led to very close relations, certainly not in the way that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia, not even in the way that European countries like France and the U.K. have with Saudi Arabia. Relations were cordial in the sense that, you know, we were talking and it was it was positive. Um, but they were limited in that both the breadth and the depth of our relations with Saudi Arabia was really pretty shallow. Bilateral annual trade before last year was between 3 and $4 billion per year, which is really not a lot. It's two days of Canada-U.S. bilateral trade. Um, and, and it made Saudi Arabia our 17th uh, trading partner in the world. So th- th- this was not an important partnership. Relations changed in 2014 to some extent when the the Harper government agreed to a $15 billion deal for Canada to export light armored vehicles, LAVs, uh, to Saudi Arabia built by General Dynamics Land Systems Canada based in southwestern Ontario. Uh, This was at the time the biggest arms export uh, agreement in Canadian history. And here it's important to understand what big arms deals like that mean with Saudi Arabia. Of course, they are economic in the sense that, you know, we sell them stuff, they buy it. They are military in the sense that Saudi Arabia acquires large amounts of military kit. Um, But it's much more than that. When Saudi Arabia spends billions of dollars in the United States primarily, at a second tier in France and the UK, at a third tier in other Western countries like Canada, Spain, uh, and a few others, Saudi Arabia views those as an investment in the partnership and saying, we are going to give you $15 billion. In exchange for that money, we want two things. A, obviously the vehicles, but B, it's an investment in the partnership. We want to deepen relations with you guys. We are basically buying your friendship in very cynical terms. And that was the expectation on the Saudi side. Where your question comes in, in the sense that it actually led to more difficult relations as opposed to better relations, is that from the Saudi perspective, and in a very narrow sense, they're not wrong, they felt that the Canadian side did not fulfill that second side of the bargain, in the sense that when the Conservatives agreed to that deal in 2014, there was an expectation that relations would deepen, but then in 2015, the Liberals come to power. Early on, the Liberals are curious. They're okay with the idea of exploring relations with Saudi Arabia, more trade, more scientific and cultural exchanges, humanitarian cooperation, security cooperation, of which there's a bit, though not that much. Um, That being said, pretty quickly in 2016, the Trudeau government realizes, wait a minute, we are getting hammered in the media by the Globe and Mail, by civil society groups because of this deal, because Saudi, we are selling weapons, we are branding ourselves as a progressive and feminist government, but we are selling weapons to one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world that is clobbering Yemen in an absolutely brutal and cruel war. So from a PR perspective, for the liberals, this was obviously not good. So the liberals tried to have their cake and eat it too. And throughout 2016 and 17, you could see liberal thinking on this issue shift where they were saying, 
we're going to keep the live deal because, as you said in the introduction, we want the $15 billion. We want the jobs in southwestern Ontario, 3,000 well-paying jobs. We don't, want, we don't want more than that. We don't want the investment in the partnership because the optics of it, the politics of it are just really bad. On the Saudi side, this was perceived very negatively, basically as Canada breaking the implicit bargain in 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 buying these weapons. So you're not just we're not just buying weapons, we're buying your friendship. We're buying we're investing in a strategic partnership and yeah. you're not reciprocating. And and as much as we understand the politics on the Canadian side, on the Saudi side, you can understand why they were feeling ripped off in a way, because they were not getting what they were paying for. So by early 2018, even though in the media, in Canadian coverage of this issue, you would have the impression that Canada-Saudi relations were very good because we're selling them $15 billion worth of weapons, everything's great. In practice, beneath the surface, this was not much seen in public, but by the spring of 2018, you could actually see a lot of tension between the two countries. I went to Saudi Arabia in April and May 2018, so this is three, four months before the uh, dispute uh, in, in August. I went there to do research on the war in Yemen, but obviously we would talk about relations with Canada on a regular basis. And it really struck me how tense relations were beneath the surface, how much frustration there was on the Saudi side because Canada was not fulfilling its end of the bargain, and how much reluctance there was on the Canadian side to deepen relations. So this is one of the things that puzzles me, though. And I got this puzzle when I was reading uh, the, the piece, which is, um, given the fact that, you know, relations have been cordial, they've been positive, but, you know, by no means has Saudi Arabia, I think, ever been a front burner issue for Canadian foreign policy, say, previous to last year. Why did the Saudis want the prestige, and I'm kind of using that in scare quotes, um, of, of friendship with Canada? Like, what? why did they want this kind of high profile relationship with Canada? So that's that's a really important question. And, and keeping in mind that for Saudi Arabia, this was never back then or since a priority issue in the same way that for Canada, for Canadian foreign policy, Saudi Arabia is not top of the agenda. Saudi Arabia has been uh, very dependent on the U.S. as, you know, what, what academics typically call the extra regional guarantor of its security. Um, Saudi Arabia is very close to the U.S. They cooperate a lot on counterterrorism. The Saudi Arabia buys weapons. They consult at a political level extensively. We see high-level visits. That's all true. That's something that Saudi Arabia wants, and that's something that is not going to change for the foreseeable future. That being said, over the years and decades, there's been a fair bit of anxiety in Saudi Arabia in terms of the reliability of the U.S. as the extra-regional guarantor of its security. That was there before 2003 and the Iraq War, which was widely viewed in Saudi Arabia as a big mistake, very poorly done. The Obama administration, where Saudi Arabia really perceived the U.S. as withdrawing from the region, trying to tilt closer to Iran. Now the Trump administration, as much as politically they are closer, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in Saudi Arabia in terms of the reliability of Trump as a, as a partner. So on the Saudi side, there's been a very conscious effort to diversify its security relationships, to hedge its bets, to be careful not to put all of its eggs in the American basket. That has been seen primarily at a second tier in its relations with France and the UK, and at a third tier with other Western powers like Canada, like Spain, like Italy. So the key point is that we're on the third tier. The U.S. being the first one, France and U.K. being the second one. But from Saudi Arabia's perspective, Canada is a G8 country. It is a, a reasonably large economy with which it can, from which it can gain from deeper ties. That was the rationale behind the, the $15 billion LAV deal. Saudi Arabia could have acquired those vehicles elsewhere. It didn't even actually need them that bad. It was really a way to target Canada and saying, as part of our broader efforts to diversify our relationships, you're on our list. So... 
this now brings us to the Saudi spat um, when when it happened, and I you know I think it caught pretty much everyone off guard. Um, although you explain, I think fairly well, there's this underlying tension. So the kind of straw that broke the camel's back was these two tweets that were sent out about um, human rights activists that are being detained in Saudi Arabia that were sent out, I think, from the either from Christian Freeland's account or from the uh, foreign affairs account. Uh, but you actually say there's these kind of other underlying assessments. And you've talked about one, which is the the impact of the LAV deal. But there's other two other things here that are significant um, that you highlight, which is, of course, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman himself and his approach to foreign policy, as well as Trumpism. And I was wondering if you could just unpack those a little bit. So on uh, in early August, the Canadian Foreign Ministry uh, published two tweets uh, demanding the immediate release of uh, human rights and gender women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia, one of which uh, had his uh, family here. So there are some some Canadian connections. Um, these tweets on their own were not especially provocative or different than what has been done elsewhere. There was the use of the word immediate release that was a bit more than usual, but on their own, this was not surprising. Nobody expected much. The tweets were translated into Arabic, which was considered a bit provocative too by the Canadian embassy in Riyadh. Overall, uh, yes, these tweets were the immediate trigger of the dispute, but any broader or deeper explanation cannot stop at these tweets. There has to be more than that. So as I, as I argue in the article, there are three reasons really that explain in a, at a deeper level why all of this happened. Reason one is what we talked about uh, just a couple minutes ago, which is the underlying tension as a result of the LAV deal. Uh, reason two is, is MBS. So um, in 2015, King Abdullah dies. He had been king for 10 years. Uh, in practice, uh, crown prince for 10 years and ruling before that too. Um, he is succeeded by his half-brother, uh, new King Salman. Salman is old. He's actually healthier than a lot of people make him to be, but he starts very quickly in 2015 promoting his son, Mohammed bin Salman, not his oldest son, but seen as his favorite son. By 2017, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, uh, becomes formally crown prince. He was already defense minister. Throughout these two years, from 2015 to 17, there is a very rapid and, and really surprising consolidation of power around MBS. And this is a sea change in, in Saudi politics in general. Until 2015, decision-making, not only on foreign policy issues, but also on domestic issues in Saudi Arabia, was the result of a complex, slow, plotting process of consensus building. The king was the primus inter paris, but he was not the sole decision-maker by any stretch. Um, King Salman and his son MBS really changed that so that by 2016, 17, 18, you have a situation that is unprecedented in decades in Saudi Arabia where power is really concentrated in the hands of King Salman and his son MBS. They have marginalized other power centers in the ruling family, but also elsewhere in Saudi Arabia, in the clergy, in business, and so on. So not only is King Salman and his son, uh, not only are they much more autonomous, but they also have a different view of Saudi Arabia's role in the world, in the region, but also beyond the, the Middle East. They are very critical of caution and uh, risk aversion in Saudi Arabian foreign policy until 2015. And they decide to throw that to the wind and to adopt a much more assertive, uh, dynamic, ambitious Saudi foreign policy. You can see that in the war in Yemen. You can see that in the embargo of Qatar. You can see that when they took the Lebanese prime minister hostage, uh, which is really mind-boggling when you think of it, um, and then with that situation with Canada. 
Um, and, and that is really a huge change in Saudi foreign policy over, over the last few years. So in that sense, Saudi Arabia, yes, was irritated at Canada because of the last deal, LAV deal. Yes, it was irritated at Canada because of the two tweets. But the dispute in many ways goes way beyond Canada in the sense that Saudi Arabia used that as an excuse, as a pretext to send a message to other Western democracies Criticism of Saudi Arabia will not go unpunished anymore. Uh, you guys criticized us for decades on human rights and other issues. We used to take it without saying anything. That will not happen anymore. So in that sense, we're collateral damage uh, of, of that broader you know, assertiveness in Saudi foreign policy. I mean, I, I find MBS endlessly fascinating, not in a good way, but just uh, he's, he's a really fascinating figure. It's just in the senses, as you say, the way he's changed. I mean, I think you might argue that he's the first nationalist leader of Saudi Arabia. He doesn't, he's not in kind of, I, I'm not sure the word cahoots is, is the right word, um, but he's um, uh, less attached, I think, to the religious authorities. He's made that clear. He's made changes. He's tried to present himself as a reformer in these ways, but um, in other ways, he just absolutely will not tolerate any kind of dissent. It's reform on his terms and his terms alone. And um, it's this kind of new nationalism. So, I mean, is he popular in his own country? Uh, do, do people uh, appreciate this? I, I suppose it's hard to tell because it's not democratic. There's no elections. I'm not sure what polling's like. But um, what's the sense of, of the way this leader is being seen? So this is a really important question, and it's a big development in Saudi Arabia that, as you said, we don't understand it well, but it matters a lot. Previous Saudi leaders were definitely nationalists. Uh, MBS is a hyper-nationalist. He promotes, alongside, by the way, uh, the crown prince in the UAE, too, is doing some, something quite similar, a new militarized, aggressive hyper-nationalism. One person I was interviewing in Saudi Arabia on the war in Yemen called it Saudi first foreign policy, which oh is not goodness. something that you would, and, and the parallel is not coincidental. Um, something that you wouldn't have seen before in the past. Saudi Arabian foreign policy, of course, they were nationalists. They were proud to be Saudis and so on from a government perspective. But they really promote Saudi interests, Saudi identity in a militarized, aggressive way, in a way that is that has not been the case before. The war in Yemen, especially in its earlier years, was really used to whip up this rally around the flag effect. So is it working? Uh, from an academic perspective, it's impossible to answer that question in a rigorous way because, as you said, there's no rigorous, countrywide, systematic, reliable polling that is being done. That being said, anecdotally, to the extent that, that some good journalists, are, are Saudis or others, are doing reporting on this issue, it works at least a bit. Uh, does it fully work? Well, of course not. It never fully works. But, but MBS is somewhat popular among a lot of Saudi youth because he's shaking up the system that was viewed among a population that is 70% under 30, which is an important point to keep in mind, right. as really a sclerotic uh, regime in many ways because kings had been systematically over 70 and 80 and over 90 in some cases. MBS is young, MBS is dynamic. Um, he is making some reforms that are popular at the social level. He is liberalizing entertainment, for example, uh, which which you can rightly view as being very cynical of giving the people bread and games. Uh, but still, it is somewhat popular. His hyper-nationalism is somewhat popular. So MBS is, is a very divisive figure uh, externally, but also internally. He is uh, right now solidly in power because he has some some legitimacy and some popularity inside the country, but also because he has brutally and systematically marginalized uh, competing power centers. 
Right. And so but this so this kind of brings us to the other side of the coin, which is that, you know, in this kind of bold new strategy, there appears to have been several missteps. OK, maybe they get away with Canada um, because, you know, as the relationship wasn't that important. It was kind of in the middle of August. I think it caught a lot of people off guard. But there's the Khashoggi case. There's the increasing criticism, particularly in the U.S. Congress, of the war in Yemen and U.S. kind of support for that uh, war, either in terms of, of trade, military goods, or even perhaps some, some kind of support. And I would also add to that the fact that um, there's now an, a U.N. report that came out last week, which is very critical and suggests that uh, MBS's role in the killing of Khashoggi should actually be investigated further, which is pretty bold for the UN to actually come out and say. So, you know, you have this line in here. A lot of people looked at the Saudi spat and said, oh, look, this is indicative of the fact that Canada's alone. In fact, we talked about that on this podcast. Like, is this the future for Canada? But you raised this really good point in the article. You're like, Saudi Arabia is also alone. It doesn't actually have a lot of friends in the world. And, you know, you point out that some of its Arab friends provide rhetorical support for Saudi Arabia, but no one, say, broke off with relations with Canada. No one really substantially downgraded it. No one has really come to Saudi Arabia's defense in the whole Khashoggi matter. So um, can you talk about, like, some of the consequences of these actions that, that basically the, the new Saudi foreign policy appears to have caused? So when uh, there was the dispute last August between Canada and Saudi Arabia, it was noticeable that very few countries came to the defense of Canada. Publicly. Uh, publicly. Yeah. That's a very important point. Uh, European states uh, cautiously, timidly called for a resolution of the matter. The U.S. basically didn't say anything. Uh, on the Canadian side, there was much uh, l uh, lament that we are alone in the world and so on. I would nuance that a fair bit uh, in the sense that, A, our allies, uh, in many cases on the European side, did work quite a bit behind the scenes with Canadian diplomats to try to resolve things. Um, and I would also add that uh, when Saudi Arabia had similar disputes, for example, with Germany and Sweden, maybe not quite as severe, but still pretty bad ones in the years before, Canada didn't say anything to come to the defense of Germany and Sweden because we just didn't view it in our interest to say anything. So that's kind of the way these things work. Uh, the interesting point that I think went largely missing in the Canadian debate is that uh, nobody came to Saudi Arabia's side during that dispute. Saudi Arabia asked Arab states to help. Exactly what it asked is not clear. Did it ask to join in on sanctions against Canada? Did it ask other Arab states to break off relations with Canada to really spend, send the message? Not completely clear based on publicly available information. What is clear is that it would have wanted more and it didn't get more. You had a press release by a bunch of Arab states, the UAE, the Palestinians, the Jordans, Egypt, and, and, and so on, Jordan, um, basically very cautiously taking Saudi Arabia's side, but no Arab state broke relations with Canada, no Arab state sanctioned Canada, and so on, because they just didn't view it in their interest to do so. So in that sense, we were not anymore alone. And if anything, we have the Europeans, we have NATO, we have the Americans for, for all the problems. So we're not alone in the world at all in that sense, as concerning as these things are. What is more, on, on the Saudi side, what has been acutely noticed uh, in uh, the UAE, in Bahrain, in Egypt, Jordan, the Palestinian territories, and elsewhere in the world, is that Saudi recklessness under MBS, as viewed with a dispute with Canada, but really that's a pretty second-tier thing, as viewed with the assassination of Khashoggi, as viewed with the war in Yemen, the blockade of Qatar, the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister, and on and on and on, is that all of this has been viewed with quite a bit of concern 
uh, by Saudi friends, by Saudi neighbors, and by others in Europe and elsewhere. Um, Saudi Arabia under MBS has been violating uh, a lot of norms of inter-Arab cooperation. Now, we could easily criticize a lot of these previous norms of inter-Arab cooperation, absolutely, and that would be fair. Uh, that being said, the impetuousness and the recklessness of MBS's foreign policy is being noticed, uh, and it is a big cause of concern for, for a lot of Saudi Arabia's friends who right now in Jordan and the UAE are really wondering, how do we manage this guy maybe for the next 50 years? Yeah, because it, it seems likely he'll be around for a while, um, even given all the criticism he's experienced. Um, I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, uh, but right now, I've my assessment, and this is an assessment that is widely shared, is that MBS's position is secure. There are no power centers in Saudi Arabia that are uh, anywhere near having the ability of marginalizing him or sidelining him. Uh, and that's likely to be the case for a while. There are rumors every now and then of threats to his life, but there's no real reason to take those seriously. Um, and, and, and he's not going anywhere. And he's in his early 30s. So he literally could be there for 50 years. So the next question is, you know, how do we learn to live with him? So this actually brings me to the third point, which we haven't even got to yet, you talked about, which is Trump. Um, and I guess part of the thing is, is, is some of the critics, it seems clear to me that he's being protected from some of the consequences of his actions because Trump is in power, particularly Trump is going to veto anything that the Congress sends up, even though the Congress has been sending, uh, in the United States has been sending very, very strong messages to the Trump administration that they are not fans of Saudi Arabia, that they are not fans of, uh, MBS either. So, you know, it's, it seems clear to me that, you know, the Trump factor is actually a really important one here. So can you unpack that a little bit in the context of, I guess, the diplomatic dispute, but also where all this is going? So in the article, I say that beyond the tweets, there are three deeper causes for the dispute. One was the tension under uh, around the laugh deal. Two was MBS and his rise and his recklessness. And three was basically the consequences of Trumpism. Um, so here there's a couple different things to say. I never accepted some conspiracy theories that floated around uh, social media in last August that the Saudis had actually gotten some kind of green light or even encouragement from the Trump administration to do this to Canada, at least based on publicly available information. I never bought that. That being said, indirectly, what Trump does is license uh, rejectionist actors, revisionist actors, actors who are dismissive of international norms. Um, to behave in a revisionist way. He and likes bullies and tough guys. He likes bullies and tough guys. He clearly signals that he will not penalize that kind of behavior. Uh, and in a way, so even if he doesn't actively say you could do that, by, by being so dismissive himself of these norms, he's licensing that kind of behavior. Now, let's be clear that in the past, whether it's Obama or Bush or Clinton or Bush or whoever before that, U.S. adherence to actual human rights norms and all of that was always flexible, right? <laughs> Selective on a case-by-case -case basis. But there was some of it. I'm shocked that you would suggest yeah, that foreign policy you know, could be hypocritical. It, it was, you know. <laughs> but under Trump, it's up to another level. Right. Uh, so that licenses actors like MBS in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince in the UAE, and multiple others, uh, to behave in that way because they're quite confident that they will be protected. They will not be penalized for that. They will not be ostracized or literally sanctioned. In the U.S. case, it's quite interesting what's going on right now. The Trump White House has been very clear. We actually saw it this week with Trump v virtually signaling that he won't do anything about the U.N. report you mentioned on MBS's responsibility in, in the, the assassination of Khashoggi. Um, 
So, you know, from the beginning of Trump's administration, we've seen that, that there is this close relationship with MBS. There's no criticism of what he does. And there's a license to behave that way. Very clear. That being said, as you mentioned, in Congress, what's been going on in the last year or two has been very interesting in the sense that, you know, Congress has always had a bit of an ambivalent relationship with Saudi Arabia. The relationship with Saudi Arabia was always executive driven in the U.S., uh, over the and years, by that at, you mean at the presidential at level? At the presidential level, by right. the White House. Unlike the relationship with Israel, for example, where there's a lot more support in the legislative branch in Congress than on the Saudi case. After 9-11, there were quite a lot of rumblings in Congress on the relationship with Saudi Arabia, but it never went very far. What we've seen in the last year, especially in the wake of the assassination of Khashoggi, is mounting uh, frustration in Congress on relations with Saudi Arabia. One of the most interesting and revealing, revealing indicators of this is Lindsey Graham. He's a Republican senator. He has been obsequious in his support for uh, President Trump on almost every issue available, from the Mueller report to everything else, except on Saudi Arabia. Lindsey Graham has been very vocal in breaking from the White House in his opposition to more weapon sales uh, to Saudi Arabia. So far, that has been symbolic. It hasn't led to actual material consequences, but it's still quite revealing. Uh, a lot of, of, of resolutions adopted by the House under the Democrats, and in some cases by the Senate too, uh, in, in criticizing Saudi Arabia. And that's, that is unprecedented. And, and in the next year, two years, especially if there's a Democratic administration after 2020, where that goes could lead to some changes. I, I think that's uh, just a really interesting point. And, you know, is there a sense here that maybe MBS has put too many eggs in the Trump basket? You know, I, I think a lot of people feel Trump stands a very good chance of being reelected, but it is by no means a certainty, especially, you know, given, <laughs> given the polls and everything. But what happens when Trump leaves? There definitely is a risk of overreach on the Saudi side uh, in general, uh, but specifically in terms of, as you say, putting a lot of eggs in the Trump basket. That being said, uh, I don't think this, this should be pushed too far. When Trump leaves, whether it's 2020 or 2024, um, there could be another Republican administration if it's 2024, or there could be a Democratic administration. A, a Joe Biden administration would not be an anti-Saudi Arabia administration. Biden would largely stick to the consensus, the bipartisan consensus, of proximity to Saudi Arabia over the past few decades. Uh, in the somewhat more uh, unlikely event of a, of a uh, Saunders or Elizabeth Warren administration, then maybe you start looking into those scenarios. But within the executive branch, at the Department of Defense in the Pentagon, at the State Department, there's still a lot of institutional support for that relationship with Saudi Arabia. So you, you know, I, I absolutely do not foresee a break in that relationship, but it is evolving and, and that mounting opposition is noteworthy. That being said, the Saudis are pretty good observers of the U.S. situation. So if or when Trump goes, uh, you know, maybe a bit slowly, but they will be able to adjust. So there's really kind of two more things I want to get to on this podcast. One is uh, the policy recommendations that you have in the paper. And then the second one is kind of the evolving strategic context, because we do actually want to have you back on for your other area of expertise, which is Iran. So we can set the stage for that in this podcast. But first, let's talk about your policy recommendations. You say in the paper, the relations remain necessary, but Canada, alongside its allies, should significantly increase pressure on Riyadh to change the costliest aspects of its foreign and domestic policies. Should this fail, the next step should be to permanently downgrade the breadth and depth of the partnership. That's a pointed recommendation. 
So my view, as, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, is that relations with Saudi Arabia are necessary but costly. What MBS has done is that he has magnified those costs by getting everybody to talk about them, uh, but he's also amplified them. That re- the, the costs of the relationship with Saudi Arabia are bigger than they are now, as opposed to what they were before 2015. They were costly before. They're more costly now. Uh, because of the intervention in Yemen. You know, we, we won't talk about the intervention in Yemen for 45 minutes, but this is an intervention that is extremely costly to Yemenis, of course, but it also really goes against U.S. interests. Actually, can you maybe uh, just take a few minutes just to give a quick overview of that for those who have probably heard of it but don't necessarily know why Saudi is there? Saudi Arabia intervened in Yemen in 2015, officially to restore the legitimate government, the internationally recognized government that had been displaced, expelled from the capital by Houthi rebels from the northwest. Um, that on its own is not necessarily such a bad idea. But the way that the intervention has been done, it is absolutely brutal. It is leading to a catastrophic humanitarian situation. It is actually reinforcing the Houthis, who are themselves supported by Iran. Um, When you say supported... Iran sends weapons to the Houthis, provides them with technical advice, some intelligence. Uh, Iran is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this war because it is using the instability in Yemen to establish what is probably a permanent foothold in the country. So we, 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 we get a situation where Saudi Arabia intervened to expel Iran from Yemen, but it is actually reinforcing Iran's presence in Yemen. It is the exact opposite. Um, so Iran is a big winner of this war. At a low investment, Iran is investing tens of millions of dollars per year in Yemen. That is really nothing. Saudi Arabia but it's is getting investing a big impact. tens of billions of dollars. Right. Iran, for a very small investment, is getting a big return on this. It is really the winner from this war. The other winner from this war is AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is the Al-Qaeda branch in uh, southern Arabia. Um, it is uh, benefiting from the instability in the country that is a result of the war to really establish a strong foothold in areas of the country in the south and east. What are the two main American interests in Yemen? AQAP, right? The U.S. has a big counterterrorism interest in Yemen. And as part of its general regional strategy of opposing Iranian ambitions in the region, opposing Iranian ambitions. So you have a result now where the Saudi intervention in Yemen is directly benefiting America's two main adversaries in Yemen which goes completely against American interests, right? Um, In addition, obviously, to the massive humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, So in that sense, um, you know, that that Saudi intervention is going against American interests. It is costing the U.S. So when I say that MBS is magnifying and exposing the cost of that partnership, the war in Yemen is one example. And we could give multiple other examples. Um, So what should we do about that? Uh, Obviously, on the Canadian side, we have very, very limited ability to have any kind of impact on that. We have to follow the debates that are going on in the U.S., in Congress, in terms of the future of that relationship. That being said, in working with allies, in Europe in particular, where there are very similar debates in terms of relations with Saudi Arabia, should we continue selling weapons to Saudi Arabia? Should we remain close partners with Saudi Arabia? In following those debates, in working with European allies, working with like-minded allies in the U.S., in Congress in particular, especially if there's a uh, Democratic administration after 2020, um, there is scope for Western allies in general, Canada being one of them, uh, to pressure Saudi Arabia to try to tone down some of the most reckless elements of its foreign policy that are directly hurting Yemenis, Qataris, others, but also our own interests. Um, So pressure Saudi Arabia uh, by suspending, not canceling right away, but suspending uh, arms deals, in our case, the LAV deal 
in European uh, cases, they have multiple arms deals of their own that they are debating right now. Um, slow down high-level visits, slow down new initiatives in relations, which is de facto what is going on right now, to send that message to Saudi Arabia, which is a message that many in Congress also want to send, that the White House is vetoing for now at least, um, to really pressure Saudi Arabia to, you know, temper, to tone down some of those most reckless elements of its foreign policy. It's, and that's interesting because, you know, and we don't have time to talk about all these elements, and I could spend like 12 podcasts on this, but MBS, one of his big initiatives is this vision 2030 which is kind of supposed to be a reimagining of the saudi economy into a far more dynamic less attached to the energy sector and these kinds of things and presumably his actions in the foreign policy sector have hurt that and our ability to have influence on saudi arabia kind of goes with the vision 2030 Exactly. And, and you're, you're absolutely correct to bring in Vision 2030. The success of Vision 2030, the social and economic reforms that are listed in that very detailed document that is available online, um, is completely in our interest. And by in our interest, I mean Canadian interest, American interest, European interest, and obviously Saudi interest to diversify the Saudi economy, to make it less sclerotic, uh, to, to boost the private sector, to boost employment among youth, among women, and so on, diversify the tourism sector, the entertainment sector, and so on. Um, it's in our interest for that to succeed. Uh, part of the problem is that the recklessness in MBS's foreign policy is hampering the country's ability to achieve those objectives. Foreign direct investment has decreased in Saudi Arabia, in part because of the instability around a lot of its foreign policy uh, initiatives. In practice, it's more complicated than that, but it plays into that. Uh, there have been important capital outflows from Saudi Arabia in the last two years, again, in part because of all the political instability around that. So that goes against our interests. As, as many Saudi watchers have said, we, Canada, the US, the West, have a fundamental interest in the success of, of Vision 2030, not only to play a part in it economically, right? There was some interest on the Canadian business side. There's something called the Canada-Saudi Arabia Business Council that was pushing pretty hard for Canada to... to you know, be a participant in those Vision 2030 reforms. Right now, a lot of that is frozen. So and I guess the final thing I'll, I'll, I appreciate you've been very generous with your time. So the final thing I kind of want to talk about in terms of, you know, where we go from here, you've, you've given some interesting policy ideas. Let's say things do somehow get better. Uh, we can repair relations. Um, MBS is perhaps a less controversial figure. Uh, maybe he, he's kind of delegates some of he his learns. foreign policy to, to other elements. But there's a real shift in the dynamics in the Middle East. I mean, I guess it's always shifting there. But I mean, right now, you know, when Craig and I were recently there, um, you know, we were talking to scholars and the way they seem to be breaking it up is is kind of three different main parties or axes that are that are happening. You have kind of these um, soft revolutionary states, which would be Turkey and Qatar, who want to have change but are not necessarily violent in their approach, but, you know, might be, you know, whether they're supporting Al Jazeera, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the second one was kind of the more violent revolutionary states, which are Iran, who's obviously been using its proxies and different uh, levers of power to kind of create instability in, in places like Syria and um, uh, Yemen, as you just discussed, and, and of course, uh, Syria, its ally. And then finally, you have I guess what I would use is the conservative states, the states that that doesn't mean that they're not ambitious in their foreign policy, but they want to keep things the way they are. Uh, and that's where we find uh, that's where they were putting Saudi Arabia um, as well as UAE and but as well as Israel too. that like, you know, that that Saudi and Israeli relationships right now, you know, maybe not formalized, but 
actually are, are, are pretty good. Um, so can you maybe talk a little, I mean, do you agree with that assessment that, you know, Craig and I were hearing? Um, and, and what is really the kind of large takeaway for foreign policymakers here? I hear that argument a lot. Uh, I find it uh, partly appropriate, but really not completely appropriate. Okay. Those who make that view, you hear that in Saudi Arabia, I heard it there. You hear that in Israel, you hear that in the US. It's a very Iran-centric view. It's yeah. uh, people who make that, who, who support that framework to view the region, really view that revolving around Iran. Um, Iran is obviously a very important player in the region that has hostile relations uh, with, with what you call the conservative bloc, uh, which is absolutely accurate. Uh, that being said, um, A, it exaggerates the unity of that conservative bloc. Right. Uh, relations between Israel and the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have improved a lot in recent years, but that ceiling remains pretty low. Okay. As long as the Palestinian issue is not resolved, and it won't be resolved, conference in Bahrain this week notwithstanding. <laughs> you mean Jared Kushner's not gonna solve is it? Going to come out of that. I'm shocked. Um, if anything, it's going to make things worse. Oh god. <laughs> uh, so the, the the existence of that block I find in reality to be uh, sketchy. Uh, the other thing is that those who, who present that framework typically are quite hostile towards Qatar and the Brotherhood. Of course. Uh, and Turkey to some extent. Um Qatar and Turkey have cooperated a lot together since the blockade imposed by Saudi Arabia and the UAE on Qatar in 2017. That being said, the existence of a Qatar-Turkey bloc I find widely exaggerated. They work together, but only so much, right? So the idea that there's this pro-Muslim brotherhood, soft revolutionary, something like that bloc, I find really exaggerated, stretches a lot the reality of what these actors do. So my, my view of the region recognizes the reality of these three axes that you mentioned, but views it as far more fragmented uh, than that slightly too clean uh, interpretation of these three blocks with far more diversity and, 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 and disagreements within and among these different actors. Well, as you said earlier, the fact that Saudi Arabia had asked its partners to kind of downgrade their relations with Canada right and they didn't really seem to, to go along with that would seem to support your analysis. That, yeah. yeah. Well, we're definitely going to have you on again soon. As you said, Iran is a, a thing. And uh, we want to talk about that thing, uh, hopefully very soon in the next in the upcoming weeks. So but I want to thank you for your time today. This is really informative. I really enjoyed uh, your piece. And you've also written uh, something very similar for lawfare as well. So you know, this is a, uh, you know, you can, I would encourage you to read uh, some of Tomas work on this subject, because at least I find it endlessly fascinating. And I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk Thanks about for it. Having me. Well, cheers. See you next time.